Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR130AC53, The Social Inheritance of Landmarks, Sixth Commandment, Deuteronomy, Doid 19, Verses 14. Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. Social Inheritance of Landmarks. With this we conclude our studies in the Sixth Commandment, Thou Shalt Not Kill, and next week we begin the Seventh Commandment. Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. This commandment has several parallels elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Deuteronomy 27.17, there is a reference to it, Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Again, in Job 24, verse 2, there is a reference to the same fact. Some remove landmarks. They violently take away flocks and the feed thereof. Then in Proverbs 22, 28, Remove not the ancient landmarks, which thy fathers have set. Again, in Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11, Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. For as their Redeemer is mighty, he shall plead their cause with thee. Obviously, therefore, this commandment in Deuteronomy 19.14 does have reference to the Eighth Commandment rather than the Sixth in that it deals primarily with property. In ancient times, every property had its landmarks at the corners of the field. Those landmarks, or boundary stones, are in order to destroy property lines and expand one's property. The way it was done usually was to go out to the corner of the field at night and move the landmarks over, say, two or three feet. Then plow quickly in the morning at sunrise so it wouldn't appear that it had been moved. And over a period of time, by moving the landmark a foot or two each year, you had added a few acres of the neighbor's land to your own. This was called removing the landmark. However, although the reference to the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal, is very obvious, we do know from Scripture that it had reference to the landmarks of history of doctrine, of morals, and of similar things as well as property. The references in Proverbs make this clear, and then, of course, 
In Hosea 5.10 we read, The princes of Judah are like them that remove the landmark. I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. And, of course, the meaning is very obvious there in Hosea. Because what he is saying is that the princes of Judah, as judges and as rulers, are breaking down the barrier between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood, between God and Baal. They are therefore removing the spiritual and moral landmarks, destroying them. The commandment, the sixth commandment, is thou shalt not kill. And to destroy the barrier between a truth and a lie, between God and false gods, is to murder society. So, in the sense that both Solomon and Hosea understand this commandment, it also has reference to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill because it is the destruction of society when the landmark of morality and of religion are removed. The removal of landmarks, of course, has been a major task of education and politics in recent years. This past week I was reading a book on the history of textbooks in America and the author, who was very happy about what is going on, commented as he surveyed the education of 19th century America. He characterized it somewhat, but nonetheless his description is basically sound. And I quote, as we look back on those years, we can see that the textbooks and the schools themselves held the Puritan ethic as their basic moral principle. It was this ethic that shaped and unified the nation. The value judgment, writes Ruth Miller Elson, is their stock in trade. Love of country, love of God, duty to parents, and the necessity to develop habits of thrift, honesty, and hard work in order to accumulate property, the certainty of progress, and the perfection of the United States. These are not to be questioned. Nor in this whole century of great external change is there any deviation from these basic values. In pedagogical arrangements, the school book of the 1790s is vastly different from that of the 1890s, but the continuum of values is uninterrupted. The child is to learn ethics as he learns information about his world, unquestioningly by rote. His behavior is not to be interdirected nor other directed, but dictated by authority and passively accepted. Thus we entered the 20th century, unquote. And of course the author Black feels that with the 20th century we began to wake up and we began to discard all these authoritarian standards such as love of country, uh, love of God, a distinction between right and wrong, and we began to question all things, which, of course, is the proper intellectual attitude, according to him. The old landmarks, in other words, were denied. And by denying the old landmarks, the sovereignty of God was replaced 
with the sovereignty of chance. In a recent issue of Saturday Review, Charlotte Willard stated it very plainly. She wrote, and I quote, Chance is the only certainty in the universe. Unquote. Now, chance is the only certainty in the universe. It means, of course, that you cannot, therefore, educate in terms of any moral standards because there cannot be any moral law if chance is ultimate in the universe. As a result, Charlotte Willard continues as she discusses a recent book, Jack Burnham's Beyond Modern Sculpture, to say, and I quote, Mr. Burnham climaxes his thesis by quoting from Intelligence in the Universe by Roger McGowan and Frederick Ordway. The former is chief of the Scientific Digital Branch Army Missile Command Computation Center, Huntsville, Alabama, and the latter president of the General Astronautics Research Corporation, London. They prophesy that the intelligent life we may encounter in stellar space will probably be the product of biological evolution, but will be inorganic, artificially constructed, intelligent life. Political leaders back on Earth will soon learn that intelligent, artificial automata having superhuman intellectual capabilities can be built. They believe, in fact, that these automata will take over the Earth. Man, in short, will bring about his own transformation from a biological creation to an inorganic concentration of information processing energy. Mr. Burnham, Burnham concludes triumphantly that the physical boundaries which separate the sculptor from the results of his endeavors may well disappear. The final illustration in the book is a bent, an upright pipe arrangement which is labeled God. Unquote. Now, the implications here, I think, are very obvious. If you deny God, ultimately, you must deny man. This is the consequence of removing the ancient landmarks. The death of God philosophy spells the death of man. And the reason is obvious to these people. Man is still, in some sense, God's creation. Man still wrestles with the idea of God even as he denies God. So how are you going to eliminate God from the universe? As long as man thinks about God? Why? By eliminating man. So man, to kill God and systematically bring about the death of God, believes that the only thing he can do is to bring about the death of man and replace him with automata, robots, who will then rule the universe and will be programmed without God. Then you will have, with the death of man also, they believe, the death of God. This seems fantastic to us, but mind you, these are not fools, but the prized scientific minds of our day which are thinking along these lines. Man plays God, in other words, by committing suicide. And of course, this is a point made over a century ago by Dostoevsky in his novel, The Possessed. He said ultimately that men who deny God must commit suicide 
in order to eliminate God from their world. As a result, in the world around us, we are seeing man moving towards that suicide. In law, the old landmarks have been replaced. This has been the work steadily of our courts, in particular of the Supreme Court. Instead of the landmarks of scripture of absolute law, we have relativistic landmarks according to the Supreme Court. Almost 20 years ago, Chief Justice Vinson said, the only certainty is that there is no certainty. In other words, there is no ultimate law or morality. Thus, with this relativism, we have a rubber yardstick which measures according to every man's wishes. But men cannot cope with reality with rubber yardsticks. And as a result, we find man increasingly unable to understand the world around him. He has a rubber yardstick, and he can measure nothing. Thus, crime rose very drastically between 1967 and 1969. But the majority of Americans, according to the Harris survey, believe that crime has dropped in that time. This is an interesting fact. Why? They've become more accustomed to riots and campus disturbances, and so it doesn't seem as extreme to them in 1969 as it did in 1967. And so they believe there has been a major drop in crime. This is the majority of Americans. Since they have no objective standard, how can they see an increase? They measure everything with a rubber yardstick. It is not surprising, therefore, in a relativistic world that people do things not in terms of an absolute law, but in terms of the group. Twice this last week, from totally different sources, I learned that with many people, it is the end thing to be for Bradley. In other words, the only criterion for voting is, is this the end thing to do? Is it any wonder that we have problems? To war against landmarks, as our world is doing, is to war against progress and against hope. In a world of chance, Nothing exists but change, meaningless change. Therefore, how can man know the future and educate in terms of the unknown? Last week, one of this group reported to me the problem confronting her in classes and education. And I've had this reported repeatedly by students who are in education. And of course, I've encountered this repeatedly in my reading. What the professor had said last week in class, feeling that this was a most learned pronouncement. That in a world of chance and of change, how could man know the future? Therefore, how can you educate children in terms of the future? Because any facts you teach them today may be completely obsolete by the time they are adults. 
Therefore, there is nothing really that you can say, this the child must learn. What the child must learn, however, is that we are in a world of change and chance and must be educated to this. Now, is it any wonder that we have revolution on the campuses? If the child is taught that there is nothing real except chance and change, then it is the duty of that child to wage war against any and every establishment. So that even if his own crowd becomes the in crowd, the establishment, he must declare war on them. And if he becomes the top dog, then everyone must declare war on him. Because only chance and change are ultimate. And this is the philosophy of education as it is taught. In school after school today, it is your students who have learned their lesson who are doing the rioting. And this is why a non-Christian school has no logical philosophy of education. It has no right to exist. Because either it must line up with its philosophy of chance and change or with a biblical standard in terms of the landmarks of Scripture. In a world without landmarks, every law or landmark is a criminal offense because it is standing in the way of chance and change. As a result, the moral premise of the Marquis de Sade was, and I quote, in a criminal society, one must be a criminal, unquote. And this, of course, is the premise of your radical students. They have a moral duty to break the law because ours is a criminal society. It is dedicated to the old landmarks and therefore it must change. It must change perpetually and therefore one must be a criminal in order to overthrow it. This is why in one of the Berkeley episodes, one of the young men who was arrested was the son of one of the more prominent judges of the state of California. The tragic fact is that the judge agreed with his son's philosophy. And of course, when you have this principle, in a criminal society, one must be a criminal, it means total warfare against every establishment and every social order. It means also total isolation for every man. Because if the only thing that is real is chance and change, what is there to link man to man? Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist, is thus logical when he says that God is no problem to him, but his neighbor is. Because what contact can he have with his neighbor? The Marquis de Sade stated it long before. He said, and I quote, My neighbor is nothing to me. There is not the slightest relationship between him and myself. Unquote. 
As a result, Saad was at war with the idea of law and of courts. The only justice he could approve of was the vendetta. His attitude was, it is legitimate for every man to commit rape, and it is legitimate to kill to prevent being raped, because there is no law except what the individual wishes, and the only thing that is wrong is not getting away with what you are doing. And of course, this is why Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist philosopher to whom I just referred, lost many of his student following in recent years because he took a stand on something. And how could he, in a world of chance and change, take a position on anything? And with that, he lost his following. And so Marcuse, who is at San Diego now, has taken unto himself as a more systematic existentialist Sartre's following. If a man's own wishes are his only landmarks, then in a world without meaning, man himself becomes meaningless. And so he should commit suicide. And Sartre admitted that many of his student followers had committed suicide, and this was a logical step. And he had no reason himself for not committing suicide. As a result, the only possible contact with other people is aggression. And the only possible meaning, crime. Saad, again, as the logical existentialist said, and I quote, Ah, how many times, by God, have I not longed to be able to assail the sun, snatch it out of the universe, make a general darkness, or use that sun to burn the world. Oh, that would be a crime. Unquote. The greater the crime, the greater the man. The only reality is aggression. But ultimately, even that pale. China, which was the first country in the world to become relativistic, to deny the ancient landmarks at the beginning of the Christian era, did so. And this is why China stagnated. The only time China advanced was when an alien group took over China, and for a while China would progress under alien leadership. But as soon as the alien group that had conquered China became themselves Chinese by faith, embraced the relativism of Taoism and Chinese Buddhism and Confucianism, they themselves stagnated. But by the 8th century, Wang Wei was saying, do not count on good and evil, you will only waste your time. And what was the cure for everything? The doctrine of non-being. There is the only remedy. In other words, to be dead. Deny all meaning as the cure for meaninglessness and finally life. In a world where the landmarks are destroyed, deny the possibility of landmarks. In other words, tell the starving man that hunger is a myth. This is the conclusion of relativism. Thus we are in a suicidal age. 
because we are in an age that is bent on destroying the landmarks. And if it is a crime to alter property landmarks and to defraud a neighbor of his land, how much greater to alter social landmarks, the biblical foundations of law and society, and thereby bring about the death of that social order. If it is a crime to rob banks, then surely it is a crime to rob and murder a social order. Remove not the ancient landmark. For by them your forefathers lived. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast surrounded us with thy landmarks and made us strong therein. Give us strength, faith, and courage, our Father, that we may reestablish thy landmarks and recall men and nations to those things whereby our forefathers lived, that we may build in terms of the old landmarks and progress in terms of thy holy calling. Bless us for this purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes.
their ideal of man increasingly is that of uh, the robot, the man who moves uh, without reference to uh, conscience, without reference to God. But of course the ideal now is that man must be dispensed with. One uh, scientist recently said that uh, man was tainted, that the machine could be created as a pure instrument, and therefore the machine was the man of the future. Now, if we had invented these statements a few years ago and said this was where science was tending, uh, we would have been uh, really attacked. But they're saying these things to a degree that... Uh, staggers the imagination. They discuss this. They say that the machine, because it won't have a conscience, it won't have aggression built into it as man does, will not have all the tensions and conflicts that human society has. The machines will be uh, self-regenerating, will manufacture new machines. It will all be programmed. Now, of course, they are talking utter nonsense, but they do believe that nothing is impossible with them. They feel that they are gods who are able to create a totally new world. I have in my Mythology of Science quoted one of the top astrophysicists who says that they will make a new sun when this one wears out, when it dies. Yes?
A very good point. What all these philosophies aim at is an end of time, an end of change world, so that uh, they are trying to achieve a heaven. Now this, of course, characterized Karl Marx. He was going to have an end of the world order with the communist paradise when time, history, and change would stop and it would be a perpetually unchanging society, and therefore it was compared to the anthill, where every per, uh, person's role is fixed and unchanging, there is no self-consciousness, there is no history. And so the anthill society of the future was to be beyond history. This is still important, and uh, there are writers who are doing a great deal of writing uh, in this area, and I have several books of the last decade which are important uh, contributions to this kind of thinking. Uh, one is titled Beyond History, and uh, the other, I believe, Post-Historical Man. However, the newer thinking uh, is of the kind I cited that dispenses with man because man is too much of a problem. So with the machine, they're going to attain this paradise, this heaven, this unchanging social order. So that while they affirm chance, they are in a sense saying we want to get beyond chance into paradise. Yes. But the point, you see, is, your question is a valid one, but you see, to deny God, ultimately, they're going to have to kill man. Because as long as man is around, they feel that it's inescapable, man is going to think in terms of God. You remember, as I pointed out some time ago, and as I developed it in my uh, book on Freud, Freud said that man feels guilty. Now, he traced this guilt to the primal horde and to the will to live, which is the will to incest, to parasite, and to cannibalism. So he said, as long as man feels guilty, he's going to try to find God to remove his guilt. So he said, the way to eliminate God and religion is to do so by coming to a medical a scientific answer to the problem of guilt by explaining it in terms of anthropological causes. Then we can eliminate God and religion. Now, this is the primary function of Freud's work. Well, of course, this has been tried for a long time, but for all their attempts, uh, man still tries to think in terms of God. So now, the next step, of course, is to eliminate man entirely. Then, with man eliminated, there will be no one to think about God, and you can say God is dead because man is dead. Well, our time is up. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.